My name is Gabe, and I'm on the leadership team here. Uh, welcome to Restoration. Thanks for coming today. A uh, few announcements to go through. First, June 15th, we have our youth summer kickoff, and that's going to be at Gene Wysocki's house. So that's coming up this week. Next week is Father's Day. Uh, so you fathers get ready to celebrate. Um, and we're also going to have a child dedication next Sunday. A uh, couple other dates. June 21st is Ladies' Night Out, and that's going to be at the schoolhouse in Old Town. And June 23rd is going to be the next pub chat for guys. And as always, if you have questions or want more information, go to our website at restorationcolorado.org. I was part of the team this week that went to uh, Rancho de Sus Niños, which is an orphanage in northern Mexico. There were 20 of us from Restoration who spent Sunday through Thursday down there. And I wanted to give a quick update on what happened, uh, although you'll get a much better update by actually having a conversation and asking people about the trip if you know they went. There were 20 of us, and we ranged in ages from, I think, 7 to... 58 or so. So it was a great, a great range with the group. Um, and we had lots of high school kids, but the full range. And we spent the week playing with orphanage kids, doing work projects, uh, playing soccer. Uh, Gabe Hernandez did graffiti art with kids, uh, sidewalk chalk, all sorts of things. We spent an afternoon traveling around, uh, going to a very poor section of town where people had uh, houses generally made of plywood and about the size of a bedroom, and we would take their trash and pray with them uh, because they had no formal trash pickup. Uh, we spent time uh, doing a work project. We were working on a water filtration system, and so uh, we're, we were helping out the orphanage in whatever way they needed, and, and we had a really good time uh, as a community. Uh, both coming together, but also just as I'm as I was reflecting on things, uh, thinking about how this church, uh, the group of twenty, but also the people who were here, uh, is living out our mission statement. And this is what our mission statement is. If you don't frequent our website, it's on there. It, our mission statement reads: We are an authentic faith community on a journey together as we travel together. And we are intent on restoring relationships with God between ourselves, in our neighborhoods, and throughout the wider world. As someone who occasionally gets up and speaks uh, to our community and, and will craft sermons and uh, part of the sermon-making routine means you're th you, one of the questions you ask is, uh, am I encouraging our community to do something, or am I patting our community on the back? And this is a time to pat our community on the back, because I read that mission statement, and it was happening this week in northern Mexico, that there were relationships restoring people seeking after God, uh, relationships within our community growing stronger, and then throughout the wider world that we were pointing others to the risen Jesus. I realize that happened in Mexico, but I also realize it happened this week in living rooms and kitchens and coffee shops 
And so I want to say it's exciting to be part of this community and this part of this community that's going somewhere. Because both as we are living out this mission statement, we're reaching forward into our vision statement. And let me read our vision statement to us. We strive to recognize and participate in the kingdom of God and to be a people that live inviting and distinct lives of discipleship. And our, vi- our vision statement is meant to help us realize that there is a kingdom of God, that God is already ahead of us. His kingdom is here, and it is our job to recognize and to, to participate in it. And that we live inviting and distinct lives of discipleship. And this is a vision statement because we're not able to say, oh, yeah, I get to check that off for the day. I've done that. But it's something we continually lean into and as we grow, continue to live out more and more. And I want to tell you, as part of the restoration community, that we are living out our mission statement and stepping more and more into our vision statement. And it's exciting to be a part of. Uh, As part of that, I'm going to shift gears and actually hand the mic and invite Gabe Hernandez up. And he's going to tell us about some ministry opportunities that he's been able to step into and will be stepping into this summer. Thank you. I love how Gabe said that we're on a journey together. A little over two years ago, I started showing up here kind of hiding in the back and I was, I was dating somebody who was very precious to you guys. And I remember one of the first things I heard was you're not going to steal her away from us. Are you? Well, I kept coming back and kept coming back and eventually I did steal her away from you guys. But, um, God called us back here, uh, last March, just really felt impressed, impressed on our heart to, uh, to go. That was the word that God told us. And we showed up here and we put our hands to the grindstone and we started working and then God just stopped everything for us in February. Um, I was working with The Connection, and we closed up as of February. And I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, okay, God, um, you told me to go. I listen very intently when God says something, and I, I try to do to the best of my ability when God says something. And he said, go. And I packed up everything. I left everything and came on this journey with you guys. And I've been very grateful to be welcomed into your community. I've had um, just relationships grow with some of you and I'm looking forward to grow a little deeper with some more of you. But, um, all that to say is that it's been, it's been amazing worshiping with you this last year and seeing your hearts and, and just how you have embraced me and you've continued to embrace Kim. I don't know how many of you are aware, but, um, restoration is now supporting myself and Kim as missionaries. Um, you guys are sending us out locally. I know we just came back from Mexico, and most people think missionaries when you take off and go somewhere. No, sometimes it's just being right here in the community. It means being a sent one. It means being a messenger, and that's what we're doing. God impressed upon our hearts a couple of months ago to um, start engaging the churches in the neighborhood. Um, Colorado has a huge problem with collaboration. I don't know if, if any of you guys have ever tried to do anything with another organization. They just, they're, they're very set back. They just want to do what they do and they want to do it well. And it was really hard to get in and get involved with other places, but God placed it on my heart to approach five churches and to ask these churches, Hey, would you be willing to do three things for me? Um, I know you have a budget for printing, so I'm going to need you to print. 
I know you have a budget for outreach, even though you haven't done it in a long time, and I know you have a building. Would you be willing to let me use those three things? Approached five churches, and one in Thornton, one in Arvada, one in Lakewood, one in Englewood, and one in Lincoln Park, and every single one of them said, let's go for it. My desire is to grow the kingdom by engaging these churches and training them how to do outreach. Every single one of these churches is struggling with their youth program. They either have um, just a very inwardly focused program and no outreach, or they just have no program at all and no outreach. The other thing they're not doing is they're not engaging their communities. None of the people that attend these churches um, live in the immediate neighborhood. So while they show up and they lock themselves in their doors and they have a great time worshiping God, they're leaving the outside unaffected. They get in their cars and they leave. Again, God impressed it on my heart to try to grow the kingdom, to try to train these people. So we began engaging them Friday. We got home from Mexico on Thursday at like 9 o'clock, rested up. I got up Friday morning, and Mark actually showed up and helped me out as well. And we hit the ground running working with these churches. Um, I, can, I could probably talk all day about it. I want to leave opportunity for Ryan to talk. <laughs> So um, I do have these little papers that are out on the information table. Um, if you want to talk to me more about it, I would love to share what's going on. But here's, um, I just want to, what do you call it? <laughs> I just want to um, mention a few ways that you can help out this summer. Number one is praying. We are, we're still looking for volunteers. We still want people to come and be able to give up their time. And just because you commit doesn't mean that you have to commit for the whole summer. Just come once. Come once and see what we're doing and fall in love with what God's doing. Um, pray for mentors, mentors, people that would stay a little bit longer and invest in the lives of the kids more intentionally than just playing around with them. Pray for the youth. Pray for the youth that are going to show up, that we're prepared to handle the problems that they're bringing into the centers. And um, pray for the church involvement. We don't want this to be just a three-month thing where we come in and do our thing and take off, and they go right back to doing what they've been doing. And then pray for the community. A lot of these churches have... They've not done a good job in engaging the community, and the community is totally turned off from going to that building and want absolutely nothing to do with it, and we're trying to open it back up to the community and invite people in. Another way to give is to serve, again, to volunteer, to bring snacks, make snacks, donate snacks, or even lead in an activity. If God's putting something on your heart and you have a skill and you want to come and share it with these kids, it'd be great. Come and talk to me. I will fit in a, a time slot for you to get into. Um, another thing to do is to connect, tell people about what we're doing. Come and talk to me. I'll give you all the information. I will talk your ear off about it. Believe me. And, um, tell people about what we're doing, have them invest in what's going on. And the last but not least is to donate on the, um, on the restoration site. We do have a special link on the donate button, which goes, um, straight to our fund and what we're doing. And, um, just really want to thank those of you that have been giving already, um, it's just, it's amazing. It's very humbling. It's, um, we appreciate it a lot. So yeah, if you want to talk to me, I'll, I'll be here for a little bit and I would love to share more about what God's doing in the community. Thanks, Gabe. The scripture today is in Ruth. We are no longer talking about the Holy Spirit. I guess it'll still come up, but, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. 
The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Melon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. And that's the scripture for today. Let's stand up and greet one another. Good morning again. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Restoration. My name is Ryan. So glad you're here. If you are new, we just want you to know we love to give out free coffee. And not the stuff that's out here. Uh, even better stuff. All right? So uh, at our info table, go grab. There's a thing that says thanks for coming. Uh, just grab that. There's a little gift card in there. Uh, we don't want anything in return. You don't have to give us your info. Um, but if you do have anything in your life, anything you, maybe you got some questions about this place, maybe you would like to get involved in some way, maybe you just have some, you know, just general want some uh, uh, encouragement or sit down and have a cup of coffee with someone, you have a connection card in your row and you can just kind of give us uh, whatever you need to give us uh, today. There's some baskets in the back and you can drop those in. Um, sometimes in the course of a church, um, there are major world events and national events that happen. And for some of you, you may be here this morning and you don't know that in the last 12 hours, um, the biggest mass shooting in our nation's history has happened. And uh, before you all get out your phones and, and look at the news, um, yeah, we, we are not a church. We're not called to be a church that um, hides from this world and the things that are happening in it. And we're actually called to hurt with people and we're going to hurt. Um, so, so what I want to do is I want to pray. Because if you haven't heard the news... Uh, they're saying uh, 50 people have been killed in Orlando. And uh, we're in dark times. And uh, many people over the next week are going to um, blame um, weapons and they're going to push forward policies and they're going to blame religions. And um, But we need to remind ourselves that we live in a post-garden world where things that were supposed to be good and, and how things were supposed to be are not anymore. Um, and so it is easy to try to look for explanations and try to blame, but we are actually called to be a people of restoration. And so we hurt today. And so um, we're going to get into a message actually today that um, is not fluffy. Um, and <laughs> there's a little inside joke there and um, it's not fluffy and there's some pain and there's some tragedy and there's some suffering in it and so uh, will you pray with me as we get started Heavenly Father we're broken by this news 
And uh, in the last number of weeks, we've talked about what it means to groan and how your spirit meets us in the ways that we can't pray. We don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to think. And this is one of those times. And so as many of us are curious and we want to answer, we want to have our questions answered. We want to know what happened. We want to know why it happened. We want to know how to keep it from ever happening again. God, you are still in control. And God, you promise to wipe every tear one day. And so God, as we approach this passage, this 3,000 plus year old story that has pain and suffering and tragedy woven all through it, I pray that we as a community here this morning would lean in and hear what you would have to say to us. God, we pray for the victims and the families, for the first responders, for so much chaos that has happened and that is happening right now. We pray that you would be um, showing yourself to people through people in this really dark moment. And so we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, so how about that for an intro, right? Um, we're in the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to get one. And, uh, if you don't have one with you right now, um, know that you can grab some on the way in. We're going to have things on the screen, but what we're doing today is really introducing you to this story. And it's a story that takes place in a time that much like really today um, is pretty jacked up. It's pretty messed up. The first line of the book of Ruth says, I'm going to get to it here in my notes. It talks about in the days, in those days, in the days of the judges, now, the book of Judges is the book that happens right before this. And this is about a 400-year period, the book of Judges. And it's disturbing. And if you were to go home and just read the book of Judges, um, you would feel blow after blow of heaviness where things happen in a cycle. And uh, most of the story of Judges is these disturbing accounts, these disturbing stories and narratives, and, and they record some of the most disturbing people in history, and, and, and it has some of the most disturbing things happen that you can think of. And, and I think some of the things that's really difficult for us, it's, it's also one of the things that I really appreciate about Scripture is that, that God doesn't hold back I mean, these are, these are events that didn't have to be talked about, but, but yet there are part of the, the moving of God's mission, and, and it's through some of these disturbing tales and these heroes and these villains that, that really God's faithful mission to an unfaithful people happened. 
that it, even in some of the messed up stuff, see, it's this kind of humongous, gigantic, jumbo scale that we see major rebellion and we see powerful judgments and we see brutal oppressors and we see armies and, and, and over-the-top heroes. And that's the book of Judges. And it cycles, one thing after another, there's a cycle to it, and we'll get into that here in a second, but it happens over about 400 years. And what the book of Ruth is, if just like your little smartphone, if you were to zoom in, if you were to zoom in and there's this one particular small uh, character story that happens within this big, humongous, crazy period of time, that is the book of Ruth. And so all of this chaos is happening all around. And what we have is kind of a love story. And it's not just a a love story between a young woman and a young man. It's actually this love story between God and his people, between what God wants for his people and kind of where they are and how God shows up to pull them across. And so it's a story within a story. And we're going to dig into this story. And like today, we're just covering the first five verses. We're, we're setting the scene. And so this summer, I mean, the next number of weeks, what you can do is you can, you can dive into it with us as well. And it's this glimpse about what a good and sovereign God is doing to accomplish his mission, okay? Not despite the sinful choices of the people involved, but in fact, through them. And the story's not big, it's kind of small. The characters are not amazing, they're pretty ordinary, actually. And it's this one little family. It's, it's about a poor foreign widow. And it's about this glimpse of this light that breaks into this darkness of this age of the judges. And it actually points to something bigger. So the book of Ruth is this story that reminds us not only that God works visibly through the prophets and through miracles and through big stuff, but actually that God works through kind of the invisible, the mysterious, even the mundane, and even within tragedy, and even within suffering. And so for some of us in the room, it's going to be a story that um, kind of meets us in our own suffering and our own tragedy and our own loss and pain. For some of us, it's going to help us discover what it looks like to when we, when we clench our fists and yell, where, where is God? Where is God right now? It's going to help some of us possibly who are doubting that God is actually in control. That through a series of events in our lives, we've wondered that. And it's actually a story for those of us who wonder if actual suffering means anything. Is it tethered to anything? Is it tethered to anybody at all? So Ruth chapter one, if you've got your Bibles here, we're going to start. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so, it, it, like I just said, it just locates the story within this 400-year period. And there's a famine. And many times throughout the, the Bible, there are famines. 
And famines tend to have significance to them for the people, meaning that there is some sort of act of divine judgment happening. And this is difficult for us, especially as 21st century Americans to really realize. But in those days, and when, in the days of the judges, and actually the last verse of the book of Judges says this, in those days, it says, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they wanted. There was no king. And so people did what they thought was best for them. People did as they felt. People followed their heart. They did what they needed to do to survive, to thrive, to get what they wanted. It was a very selfish time, not unlike our time. And this resulted in a world that was jacked up politically. There was no king, and so there was different factions. It was, it was morally corrupt. It was religiously corrupt. It was socially corrupt, and there was economic chaos. And then you throw into the fact that there's a famine in the land. And so this cycle of the judges kind of went like this. The people were, uh, you know, it started with the people maybe enjoying God, Okay, enjoying what it was like to live under God's kingship. But then they would take God's kingship for granted. And this is a generational thing. So this would, this over 400 years, this would cycle, okay? And they would take God for granted, and then they would become lazy and selfish and kind of act out of impulse. And then they would become ungrateful. And then they would become idolatrous, right? They would say, well, this... This God thing, this God as king thing is not working out. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to try to go over here and, and worship some different gods. Maybe that'll work for us. Maybe that'll work and fix things. And then they would experience pain. And they would experience difficulty. And then they would come back to God. They would turn back to God and then they would enjoy God again. And then there would be this cycle through the book of Judges. And the words go on here in Ruth. It says, so a man from Bethlehem, and that word Bethlehem, we're going to define a lot of names here in a lot of places, okay, just to give us an idea of what's happening. So this, this town of Bethlehem actually means house of bread house of food. It was this place where there's supposed to be abundance. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. There's a translation that actually does this better. It actually says they went to sojourn in Moab. Now, the word sojourn is actually an interesting word. It means to leave with intent of returning. So here they are in Bethlehem, the house of food. There's a famine. And they decide to leave that place and to sojourn in Moab. Now, um, in a little bit, I'm going to show you a map. But 
this is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is, this is actually outside of the promised land. This is not Israelite territory. And so what it, it, it means is that they, they choose to live. And, and you know how this goes sometimes in our lives. When something temporary becomes long-term and you didn't intend it to be. You said, well, for a little while I can do this, or for a little while this makes sense, or, or just for a little while I'll, I'll take this on, and then it becomes your life. And you never intended it to be, whether it was good or bad. And sometimes when we leave, even it's a temporary thing, it actually becomes something we settle into. The man's name was Elimelech, meaning this, my God is king. The man's actual name means my God is king. His wife's name, Naomi, means sweet and pleasant. And the names of his two sons, Malan means sick, and Kilian means decay and dying. Yeah, and if you've ever seen the movie Talladega Nights when they named their two sons Walker, Texas Ranger, not Dr. Quinn and Medicine Woman. I mean, it's like these poor kids, they're named after the, what's happening in society. And, and a lot of times people would name their kids after the events that unfolded around their, their birth. And so the, the inspiration for their names actually means something. It means the conditions in which they lived, sick and dying. This was a brutal famine. The conditions in Bethlehem are bad. It's known as, it's named the house of bread, but there's not enough. And since people are doing whatever they want to do, it's probably a pretty sinister place. Is probably every man for himself. And so Elimelech, he's got the weight of his family and their health and their well-being and their nourishment on his shoulders. And he begins to weigh his options, and one of his options is to sojourn in Moab, to go to a foreign country, to see if it, the grass is greener over there, Right? And so if we were to pop this map up here on the screen, Elimelech's probably thinking, well, at least there's hope in Moab. See, they're up in Bethlehem in Judah, and they make the journey up and around to Moab. And this journey was one of those things where it was at least 10 days to make. You don't have livestock because there's a famine. And any livestock that you had has probably been used for sustenance at this point. So there's no pack animals. You carry what you can carry. You take what you can take. They're full-on refugees. So Elimelech and Naomi, and sick and dying, um, load up their packs, and they head to Moab, hoping for greener pastures. The verse tells us, in verse 2, it says, tells us this. They were Ephrath, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. 
and they went to Moab and lived there. Okay, this is so amazing when I dug into this a little bit. Obviously, we've talked about Bethlehem. They're actually from the, the area known as Judah. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when they settled the promised land, every single tribe got a section of it. Judah got a section of this Land And this land was, it's got a lot of desert to it, but there's some really fertile ground, Bethlehem, house of bread. And, and th- this was, what's amazing about this is the Ephrathites. The Ephrathites are actually a family, a clan within Judah, named after Ephrathra, okay? And Ephrathra, she is the wife of Caleb. As I dug into this a little bit, Joshua and Caleb are the two courageous spies that actually believe in the promises of God enough to say, yes, we can go into the promised land. Caleb marries what has to be a strong and courageous woman. So strong and courageous that a whole clan is named after her which is unheard of in scripture, to be named after a woman. This clan is named after Ephathra. I can't even say her name. Named after E. And so here we have a family with lineage tied back to Caleb and Ephathra, tied back to courageous people. These people are insiders. Elimelech, Naomi, they're insiders in the clan of Ephrathra in Judah in living in Bethlehem. They are big deals. And they choose to pull the ripcord. They choose to take off. And after uprooting his family and moving to Moab, Elimelech dies. And tragedy is added to suffering. But there's some hope for this bride, okay? There's hope for Naomi, and she has two sons to care for, sick and dying. So sick and dying marry Moabite women. One named Orpah, which means gazelle. And we'll find out next week that she's a runner, okay? She's a runner, And the other one is named Ruth, and her name means friendship. And we find out that she's a keeper. And after they lived there about 10 years, both sick and dying also die. And Naomi, it says, was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi leaves her people. Naomi leaves her land. Naomi leaves her community. And now she has less than she had before. She has no husband. She has no sons. And she has no hope. She's got probably, my guess is, she's probably got a little regret. Right? If I had only not left, I wish I hadn't listened to my husband, whose name was My God is King. 
I wish that this had not happened. I thought that this would be a better pasture here. You ever had one of those days, right? You know, you know when you talk to people like, man, I've had one of those days. Well, what if one of those days turns into one of those lives? That's Naomi. Some scholars call her the female Job. Because here she is, she's not with her people, she's not in her land, her husband's died, her sons have died, and she's living in a foreign area, and there's no hope. And, and when you talk about losing your husband and losing your sons, what you're talking about is losing the ability to provide for yourself. She's got no options. So I hate to disappoint you, but that's as far as we're going today. And there's a reason behind this. There's good stuff to come, but I really believe that we need to feel this. We need to really feel where Naomi is. It doesn't look good. We need to feel Naomi's bitterness. We need to feel her despair. We need to feel her emptiness. We have got to feel this. Why? Because too often, you and I, we live in this world that tries to insulate ourselves from all of this. Pain. We have funerals quick. We try to wrap things up. We do memorial services. And then everybody that came, they're gone. We don't know what to say with, to people who have a diagnosis or have lost a loved one. We don't know what to do when someone is at the end of their rope financially. We don't know what to do. We, we like to think that we can just pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just handle things and try harder. That's what Elimelech did. Elimelech went around thinking, hey, his, his name meant my God is king, but he didn't really act like it. Because if God was king, then Elimelech didn't have to be. And he chose to be. We have to feel some of this stuff. We have to feel some of this desperation. We have to feel some of this emptiness before we can really appreciate the, the wonder of God's kindness. Before we can really dig into to see how God shows up and how this situation ends up coming out. Now, I know some of you have read the story. You know what's to come. You know that there's this, this, this redeemer, there's this events that happen. You know that there's some beautiful things to come, but our tendency is to rush too quickly out of the book of Ruth and into the New Testament and wrap this thing up like an 80s sitcom. Like, it all, let's wrap this up in a half an hour. Let's get this all figured out so we can go out of here feeling better, right? But that's not our stories. Because we're going to actually go out of here. Some of you are going to look at your phone and read about what's just happened. Some of you are going to dive back into a life that you have um, found yourself in, that you have settled in, that you have sojourned into. And it's not working out. See, our tendency is to wrap things up, and we need to feel this. We need to feel what it's like to be an alien like Ruth. In the days to come, in the Sundays to come, we're going to experience what it's like to be a foreigner, a foreign 
widow, poor foreign widow living on the edges of a field. When the Bible talks about the four things that we're supposed to care for, we're supposed to care for the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. She meets three of the four criteria. We need to feel what it means to be left without. We need to feel what it, be, it feels like to be a refugee. We see pictures of refugees flooding into Europe with only their kids and the stuff they can carry. We need to feel what that looks like. And then we need to be able to just really honestly look at our own suffering. Because the question is not if suffering will occur in our lives, but when. And when it does, how will we respond? Will we believe that God in this situation, will we believe in God's promises and that, that we can't control? Will we trust him even if he doesn't take us out of it? Will we run? Will we follow him into the suffering even a little bit more? See, our suffering is real. And, and here's the thing. I don't want to be flipping about suffering and the kinds of hardships that this room is under and has been under, when we talk about job loss and not being able to pay bills and miscarriages and, and diagnoses and all those things that we have in our lives and those frustrations. And because of these experiences, um, many of us feel really hopeless and we just don't have answers and we don't, we don't know where to go next and we don't know how to respond. And sometimes that hopelessness leads us to doubt whether God is real and whether God is good and whether he is really in control. But let's talk about Elimelech really quick. Because Elimelech's name means my God is king. And in the time of the judges, it says there was no king. And so the people did as they felt they needed to do. And so we'll see a little bit further in the book of Samuel that the people actually say, we, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations who have a king. And so we want a human king. And God says, this actually disappoints me. Because we had a deal. That you would be my people and I would be your God and I would be your king. And that you wouldn't need a human king. And so what the, the period of judges is, is this constant uh, battle between is God king and are we in charge? And his name means my God is king. But apparently God, not, God does not really play a role in how Elimelech lives his life. He does not pray. He does not turn to God. He does, doesn't show us that he's looked for wise counsel. And when he has no bread to eat, he packs his family off and walks away from God's promise. He walks away from the promised land. He actually chooses by his actions to say, I do not believe that that promise to be true. So my God is king, acts as if he is his own king. And he does what is right in his own eyes. See, here's the thing, everybody. Faith 
Faithlessness is not simply making ungodly decisions. It's actually making decisions without God. And we can sing God is King every Sunday morning. And yet we can go out and try to control everything in our lives. Everything. And you know what's interesting as I reflected on this, there's such a huge connection to the, the garden story in Genesis. That ultimately the sin, the first sin that the Genesis account talks about is that the people decided that God wasn't good enough. That God was somehow holding out on them with this fruit, this, this image of the fruit. And we find here Elimelech's story is a very human thing, isn't it? It's a very human thing. It's a very Ryan Ashley thing. You see, at my deepest core, I'm broken just like Elimelech. I want to have control. I mean, it makes, uh, uh, it makes perfect sense. With famine here, maybe there's better chances over here. Let's go. See, the Genesis account is, is kind of this default wiring that's in all of us that we have to pursue our own plans. But ultimately what this does is it leaves us all without. It leaves us kind of like Naomi, left without. Sitting in our own bitterness, in our own frustration. In fact, in a little while, Naomi, her name means sweetness and pleasant. She actually tells everybody to call her bitter. And she doesn't even like her name anymore. It doesn't really speak. Her name doesn't really speak to how she is and how she lives and how she feels. She's not secretive about it. And that's what I love about Naomi. She's allowed and she's honest. So what I want to tell you is that there is hope coming. The book of Ruth shows it that there is hope in suffering, that God is a God of providence, that God is at work, that he has not uh, abandoned his broken world here. He, he actually works through the ashes of creation to create beauty, and we'll begin to see this a little bit. We see that God is actually king and that he reigns in all the affairs of humanity on earth, and there's big things and small things, and there's actions and nations and families, and all of that is involved. And many of us are suffering right now in this moment. Many of us are broken right now in this moment, and honestly, I cannot tell you why beyond the fact that we live in a broken world and that broken people are here all of us are and that we have broken bodies and that we do broken things and belief in Jesus doesn't take away tragedy. Belief in this redeemer, in this ultimate savior doesn't take away tragedy. It doesn't take away suffering. In fact, we can lean into uh, Jesus even more because of the pain and the suffering and the tragedy that he experiences. But we look at the things in our lives, the irritating things and the devastating things, and we just don't know what to do with it. And if you confess faith in Christ, you actually relinquish control in trying to fix it. 
because sometimes that actually leads in hope in ourselves. And that we don't run from it because that actually helps us lean into things that are false, that there's, there's other false saviors out there. And we don't just sit and be bitter in it because that actually means to hope in nothing. And there's nothing wrong with being angry. There's nothing wrong with being frustrated. There's nothing wrong with being brutally honest about your bitterness to God. But folks, let me just tell you this. We do this in community. We do this in community together. And that's the only way to do it. Because the default in us is actually to run and hide, to run away from our people, to run away from, the, from, from this gathering of God's people and actually hide and deal with. We figure, well, we've got to get this cleaned up. We've got to get this figured out. We've got to get this solved before I can actually be at church, before I can actually be with a community of people. And that's just false. But that's just that inner wiring we have. And, and I'll just be honest, we have options. We're consumers, right? We have options. So uh, when suffering comes and when pain comes, we sometimes try to hide. We sometimes try to choose to consume something else. But the, the important thing is to remind ourselves of this resurrection event that happens later, which proves that suffering is always mysterious, but never, ever, ever senseless. And so in this series, look, we talked about the foreigner, the widow, the poor, and the orphan, and how Ruth is three of those four. Remember that the judges did everything in the book of Judges, people did everything as they pleased. Really at the broadest level, this story is about an outsider becoming an insider. And that is the great news. That is ultimately the story of the gospel, that we are all outsiders and we have the opportunity to become insiders. You're going to hear two different words coming up. One, goel, which means redeemer. You're going to hear another word called hased, which means kindness, deep kindness. But for our purposes this morning, I want to ask you a few questions. The first one is this. Where are you left without? Where are you left without? Where do you find yourself swallowed up in bitterness? Where are you calling God king and then maybe acting as if you are your own king? Where can you, uh, where can you uh, make room for this Redeemer. See, the book of Ruth is actually a pretty powerful book. Did you know that in, in Jewish uh, tradition, the book of Ruth is read during the Feast of Tabernacles? It's actually the one full book read during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's not a very long book. In fact, I would encourage you, if you were to go home, sit on your front porch, read the book of Ruth. You can get through it pretty quick. They would read this as a community on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the feast every year where the people would gather and for eight days they would celebrate God's provision. They would celebrate God's provision through the harvest, you see. 
And they would remember the wandering in the wilderness and that God gave them food and water and finally a fruitful land to inhabit. And so they would gather once a year under the Feast of Tabernacles. They would build shelters out in the wilderness and they would live, they would go camping. (laughs) And they would remind themselves that God had provided for them not only the ability to grow crops, but the land in which to grow those crops. And the book of Ruth was read at the beginning of every Feast of Tabernacles. We're reminded of God's provision here. See, what we're going to do today is we're going to celebrate communion. And what communion is, is an act that Jesus tells us to participate in. And he's telling his disciples what he's about to provide. That this provision continues, but it's actually even better than bread. He says, he grabs this loaf of bread and he rips it in half and he says, this is my body broken for you. This bread is a symbol of my body broken for you. And that every time you eat it, every time you take it in, remember that my body will be broken for you and has been broken for you. And then he grabbed this cup and this is during the the Passover meal and he grabbed this cup of wine And he says, this wine represents my blood spilled for you. This is me providing for you. Nothing you deserve, nothing made you worthy. You're a foreigner. You are poor. You are left without. And I'm showing up to provide. And so this morning as we come to the table and we sit in this desperation of Naomi. Where are you desperate? Where are you left without? Where does Christ meet you in communion? 